0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Michael Bloomberg, the billionaire former mayor of New York City, has toyed with running for president at least twice before. But now he's in it, because he's afraid President Trump could win re-election. It's a sense of urgency that's shared by a man known to politicians and journalists by only one name, Cheeky. Kevin Sheeke is Bloomberg's campaign manager. I sat down with him at campaign headquarters in New York City on December 12th. He'll walk us through Bloomberg's multi-pronged, never-tried-before campaign. Listen, Mike Bloomberg is in this race to put a few nails in Donald Trump's coffin as president of the United States. Hear the rest right now. Kevin Sheiki, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. So, full disclosure, we have known each other for uh, almost 20 years. Can't uh, be that long. I, I, yes, it you has. You are too yes. young a man for it uh, to be that long. You are correct. Uh, and I was a policy advisor on on then private citizen Mike Bloomberg's first campaign for mayor. You handed me a copy of Bloomberg by Bloomberg. You said, read it, and let's talk about you joining the campaign. And back then, no one thought Mike Bloomberg could be the next mayor of New York City. One, because Democrats outnumber Republicans in New York City, at least then, five to one, and coming off two terms of Republican Mayor Rudy Giuliani. And yet, you saw one. What was it? Well, let's turn the tables here. So uh,
1: uh, not only uh, were you on that campaign, you were the first hire of Mike Bloomberg's first campaign, one that was uh, certainly... uh, so absurd uh, that it probably took us quite a while to find the second person. Um, but, you know, listen, there are certainly parallels, I suppose. Um, you know, Mike Bloomberg wasn't losing to one or two people. And when he launched that campaign, he was losing to everyone. Uh, no one expected him to compete. No one expected it to be a factor on the campaign. Uh, maybe no one but Mike, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And listen, I think, you know, we ran a remarkable campaign in 01. There are lots of things that played out over that year, obviously, uh, and most notably 9-11. But, um, you know, I also think, you know, there could be parallels, which is, you know, I don't think a lot of us, even those in the campaign, really thought about what government would be like. But it turned out not only was Mike able to win a remarkable campaign with a remarkable set of people who would, many of whom had never worked before together or ever thought they would work together. But he actually turned out in ways that were quite surprising and and, and obviously uh, historically important to be the right mayor at the right time Mm -hmm. for New York and to build it back. New York City was was really at a crossroads when Mike took office weeks after 9-11. And, hey, listen, regardless of what this campaign ultimately produces, there's no doubt, in my mind, that the country and and the planet is at a
0: crossroads uh, today. As you say, this campaign. So let's talk about this campaign, and it's one that Mike Bloomberg has toyed with a couple times in the past, and that's running for president. So what's his path this time? Yeah. How, how does he think he can run and win the presidential nomination and then go on in the general and win the presidency? Well, I,
1: I think Mike would, would joke that it's a it's a campaign that I've played with uh, several times in the past. There's no question that that Mike w- would like um, uh, to be president. Obviously, there's a crowded field of people who w- will say the same thing. You know, Mike has never been someone who wants to sit on the sidelines. Um, he's someone that w- wants to make a difference. He sees a challenge and he wants to address it. And, you know, like I said before, this this is the greatest challenge I've seen in my lifetime, to be sure, I think there are two things to think about in terms of a campaign. And, and they're both important, because the first is ultimately why Mike got in, which is uh, a general election is really only fought in six states. We pretend that there's a national election. There's not a national election. There's an election, in what we call swing states. Historically, that's about 10 to 14 states. Today, uh, given the way the electorate has divided up and to some ways, uh, the way Donald Trump has divided the country, it's in six states. And so the elections in Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida, in Arizona. In November, uh, those are the states that will make a difference. You know, Mike uh, had decided not to run uh, some months ago, and he changed his mind because he looked at the polls, the polls that we had done, the polls the New York Times had done, and he saw a dynamic where Donald Trump was going to win. Listen, he didn't choose to run for Congress uh, two years ago. He looked at the country and he said, we need a democratic house. We need a house that can hold the president accountable. They're doing that today in Washington. And so he went out and led campaigns in 24 congressional districts. Uh, Republican held congressional districts. He elected 21 Democrats in those seats and 15 women. The problem is, um, you know, this time uh, there is a chance that the campaign, uh, as it's playing out at the presidential level, both doesn't address, which I think we should get into, the the general election and where it is nor does the primary produce a candidate who can
0: defeat the president uh in November and uh, mike got in for those reasons yeah, well i was going to ask is the reason really the reason why mike got into the race after saying back in march he wasn't going to get into the race is because he views vice president biden who's at, still nationally the front runner he's a weak front runner
1: yeah I, listen i think it's important to say uh, i've had the pleasure to know the vice president he is as decent a public official as I've ever met, full stop. But I think the field uh, generally in the polls, new polls are out this week around some of those upper Midwestern states show the vulnerability of the candidates other than Mike. And, and listen, our campaign has just begun. Uh, there's no question in my mind that this campaign, our campaign, uh, will show that Mike is ultimately the strongest candidate to defeat the president. Um, And that's what Mike has got in. That's what we're going to we're going
0: to set out to prove. So but how how can you prove that that he is the strongest candidate to go up against President Trump when he's skipping the first four states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada and South Carolina and focusing on Super Tuesday, which comes three days after South Carolina. But what does that say to not just the Democratic electorate, but to the country as a whole if he's willing to skip those four states? Well, I'll be blunt about it. It says that the system for finding a Democratic candidate, the best
1: candidate, to defeat incumbent president, is broken. And so if you want to buy into that system, you'll produce a flawed nominee and you'll lose. And unfortunately, as a party, that's what we're doing. Listen, like I said, if, if let's, let's look at those four states, uh, Iowa, and New Hampshire, uh, and we, we, we say early states by saying South Carolina, Nevada, partly because uh, uh, in a Republican campaign, McCain won New Hampshire and then ultimately Bush beat him. In South Carolina, and the the election was over after uh, three states. Uh, But when you hear no Democratic candidate, no candidate, Republican or Democrat, has ever become president without winning one or both those states, you're also hearing the conclusion of that, which is, those two states pick our nominee. Again, full stop. Like those two sentences are the same. The problem with that is, let's look at what we're doing in Iowa right now. And you and listen, we went out to Iowa. There's some tremendous people out in Iowa. It's, a, it's an incredibly involved state, and, it, and it's a wonderful thing that's going on out there. But the other way to sort of look at it is we as a Democratic Party find 22, 24 candidates, 17, 10, whatever the number is on any particular day. Uh, they go around the country and they raise money from people all over the country, from all 50 states, territories, overseas, donors, uh, wherever they can get them. And then they invest that in Iowa. They hire staff from around the country that go there. Uh, they open offices. They open offices. They campaigned for the votes of the people in Iowa. Uh, I'm not surprised at all that Mayor Pete is leading in Iowa. He's a very good retail campaigner. He has more offices than any other candidate in Iowa. And last month, 37% of caucus-goers said they had met him already. So he spent a whole year with that investment. Think of the investment that the party has made in Iowa. Well, I mean, I'll ask you, Jonathan. Who's going to win Iowa in November? Every Democratic pollster, every Republican pollster will tell you that Donald Trump is going to win Iowa. So we invest a year in a state with every resource we can find in the state of Iowa. Donald Trump doesn't have to invest money in Iowa. He may go for a rally or two, but he's going to win Iowa. He's going to win Ohio, too. Both have enough votes of Donald Trump's base to swing them to the Republican fold. Obama won them twice. Uh, Trump has won them once. Where's Donald Trump this week? He's in western Pennsylvania, because Pennsylvania is a swing state. Where was uh, Vice President Pence and Sarah Sanders last week? Barnstorming Michigan. Because Michigan's a swing state. If we really wanted a primary that would give Democrats an advantage, and ultimately, in my view, a winning advantage, you would restructure the primaries so that the first state would be Wisconsin, second state would be Michigan, third state would be Pennsylvania, and the fourth state would be Florida. Think what it would mean for a general election if Democrats had spent the last year in Wisconsin raising money, investing in that state, opening offices, knocking on doors, understanding the voters, and understanding the concerns of the people of Wisconsin. No Democratic candidate that came out of that primary could lose that. Think how great it would be if they were in that primary right next door to Michigan. And we're doing kind of the same thing in Michigan because it's not like flying from Iowa to New Hampshire. It's right next door. Mm -hmm. We'd win Michigan. Think about if we were in Hershey, Pennsylvania, instead of Donald Trump, right, campaigning for the votes, we're ultimately going to swing the election and then spending money and investing in Florida. The problem with the system that you set up that you asked about is that it runs an enormous risk of both ceding all of this year to Donald Trump in places that matter in November and investing all of our resources in places that don't.
0: So let's keep talking about this system and then come back to the system that you're talking about. What happens if the first four state primaries and caucuses aren't split and one of the front runners sweeps? Let's say Vice President Biden wins Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. How does that affect your theory of the case, or does
1: it? Well, listen, I think we are, we are as um, whether it be in the party traditionally, whether it be the news media, whether it be candidates, bought into the idea that we're going to run some early state primaries. Someone's going to sweep, become the nominee, as you say. Uh, historically, that, that has happened. Mm-hmm. And that we anoint that person the winner. There may be someone trying to catch up, but we've largely decided who the nominee is by the time we get to the third state. So that's certainly one option. Hey, listen, there's a chance that my theory of the case is wrong. You know, we're running that test right now. But my theory of the case is that people in California and Texas and Oklahoma and Arkansas, Alabama, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, Utah, Colorado, Minnesota, Maine, even Vermont, don't wake up in the morning to find out what someone in Iowa and New Hampshire did. You know, they might. And maybe maybe the importance of what they read in the paper about what happens there is the case. I think that you can run a national campaign. Now, no one has run a national campaign for a primary, in my view, since 1960 and, and John F. Kennedy. Uh, but my view is if there was ever a time to run a national campaign and get people all around this country involved and organizing it, knocking on doors and standing up for the need to replace this president, it's now.
0: I find it curious that the states that you mentioned, Arkansas, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, maybe Vermont, why did you, why did you name those Because every states? single one of them is
1: a Super Tuesday state. Oh. And, you know, the early four states uh, that you talked about have uh, 3.9 percent of the available delegates. Um, and those states have 38 percent of the available delegates for the eventual nominee. Um, and, and listen, you know, Mike was down in Texas the last weekend in Plano to address the Democratic State Party there. Uh, Texas is an incredibly important state. It's a state whose demographics is, are changing. It's a state that statewide can move from red to blue. Perhaps not this cycle, but but certainly next. Mike was the only Democrat to go down to the, see the Democratic State Committee uh, this week, and one of the few candidates to even bother to call the state chair of the Democratic Party there. That's a state with 228 delegates. New Hampshire has 24. Uh, we're obsessed with New Hampshire. It's all I read about. When's the last time you heard about someone campaigning down in Plano? When's the last time you heard about someone focusing on voter registration in Texas to help that state move forward? Uh, Michael will be down in North Carolina this, this weekend. Uh, North Carolina has 110 delegates. Uh, again, New Hampshire has 24. It's an important state. It's a critical state because it's one of those general election states I mattered. It's one of the six states that a Democrat has to win at least four of to become president of the United States. When's the last time – Michael will be down in Charlotte this weekend. When's the last time you heard another – Democratic presidential candidate barnstorming through North Carolina?
0: Well, well, I mean, I think the answer to that is the fact that Mike Bloomberg has the money to go into all these states when other candidates as you were talking about are spending all their time raising money from all sorts of people and then hunkering down in Iowa but I want to you said something before we we got started and I asked you to stop talking because I wanted you to save it for the interview and you you said rather emphatically Donald Trump is already winning and Democrats don't even realize it can you talk that out yeah, listen, I mean, as a party, we're running
1: a, a a primary to pick a party nominee. And Donald Trump is running a general election. And they're happening in two different places. And, you know, back to Iowa, we decide that Iowa and New Hampshire are picking our nominee. Neither of those have any impact on this general election. Donald Trump is, like I said, running in Arizona, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Florida. Heck, he changes his registration to the state of Florida. He's a Florida resident now. And and listen, I'm the first person to tell you, yeah, I get it. The guy's doing it for tax reasons. And, you know, he's probably done most of the things in his life for, for tax reasons uh, to try to get out of them. But I think it gives him a point. And that's a state that, you know, whoever wins gonna is going to win it by a point. Um, and so Donald Trump is historically well-funded. He has raised more money uh, than any presidential candidate in the history of this republic, Democrat or Republican. And he's investing it in six states that are going to decide the general election. And we, as Democrats, uh, most candidates, other than Mike, are investing it in four states that don't.
0: You know, one thing I find interesting about the campaign that Mike is running is he is not just running for president. He has a huge digital ad campaign focused directly at President Trump. He's registering voters in key states. And just the other day, it was announced that he's funding vulnerable Democrats in districts that, where President Trump won in 2016. Couldn't he do all that and not run for president? Because those three things are unbelievably vital to the Democratic Party and what should be done regardless.
1: Yeah, so you picked up on something I think it's really important, and I don't think enough people are picking up on. Mike's doing two things. Uh, it's all under one umbrella. Uh, Mike's running to remove Trump. Right, um, And like I said at the beginning, he got in because he thinks at the end of the day he may be the best candidate to ultimately build the broadest possible coalition with the best possible campaign and the greatest amount of resources to ultimately go do that in places that matter. And so, uh, yeah, we think that we can do both. And so, yeah, we're not only running uh, digital ads around the country and in Super Tuesday states on Mike's behalf. We're running ads against the president right now in the upper Midwest, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and we'll stretch that to, to 10 other states. Mike has started the general election now, on behalf of Democrats, and again is doing things that are not designed to benefit his candidacy, but are meant to weaken the president. So when there is a nominee, we can replace him. Um, now, listen. I mean, you think about, you mentioned something else that I think is really important. Mike announced yesterday that he is giving ten million dollars to support the the House Democratic majority. Really important to dissect that for a minute because it goes mm-hmm. back to what I said about the fear about Trump. If you're a moderate Democrat, let's look at those you know, 24 seats that Mike focused on uh, last year. Uh, we replaced in 21 of those seats, Republicans with Democrats. And so you're in a moderate district. And in your district, they're looking at impeachment. They're looking at this debate play out in Iowa. And almost to the one, if you, Jonathan, you're down in DC, were to go talk to those members, they'd say, yeah, this is a problem for me. When you hear Nancy Pelosi say... Or or anyone else, say, and the media speculate, Nancy Pelosi is going to have some trouble making sure she gets all those moderate Democrats on board with voting for Trump's impeachment. What you're hearing is the politics in their district is getting tougher, right? Now, let's let's take that the next logical step. The politics in their districts are getting tougher because those voters, those swing voters, the voters that put them in office— are not on board with the impeachment process. They are more focused on other issues which they think directly impact them in their lives, whether they be jobs, whether they be health care, whatever the issue is. But when you hear those Democrats in marginal districts are becoming more vulnerable, you're also hearing that Trump is becoming stronger in places where the general election will be fought. And that is exactly what we're addressing. So Mike's support for those Democratic members of the House is to make sure we can keep them in office, to make sure that they can continue to hold the president accountable for his actions. But understand, if you look at that, it is also sending a signal to us, or should, that the president is getting
0: stronger as we
1: move towards this general election. And that should scare the hell out of all of us.
0: So does that mean that impeachment is a mistake? That, no. That impeachment, folks should dial back impeachment impeachment to something like is,
1: censure? Impeachment is a requirement, right? I mean, this president has clearly committed impeachable offenses, right? And, and, and listen, I'm, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I'm, in fact, not even a lawyer. But, you know, when I sit on the couch and I look what's going on, I think to myself, yeah, yeah, we should impeach him, right? And I think a majority of Americans, I, I would hope, feel the same way. But politics isn't about how I feel, right? The politics of the moment is that there are a lot of people in this country in a set of very important states who voted for Barack Obama, and then they voted for Donald Trump. And we run the risk of them doing that a second time.
0: And it's something we simply can't afford to let happen. Okay, so those voters who voted twice for President Obama, once for President Trump, are they reachable? We think they are. Um, We've spent a lot of time looking at the data of who they are, where they are,
1: um, how ultimately they could be persuaded, what sort of candidate can persuade them, what sort of messages you need, and what sort of campaign you need uh, to actually reach them. Listen, the president also has the most technologically superior digital campaign using social media and, and other measures to reach candidates of, of anyone in this country. He, he may be um, less superior than the Russians are these days, who seem pretty intent on screwing things up. But um, uh, make no doubt that we as a party are, as a whole, two to three cycles behind where the president is in his ability to target voters. And that's another thing that we're looking at in terms of addressing
0: that gap. And, and I believe that this campaign will be able to close that gap between now and November. OK, so let's talk more about the Democratic Party. Um, it has been said over and over and over again, and I believe it's true, that no one's going to win the Democratic nomination without the African-American vote. Is that overstated, given your theory of the case that you? No, I don't, think all, no I don't think it's overstated. I think it's an extraordinarily important constituency in the Democratic primary. And so then to that point, Mayor Bloomberg apologized for stop and frisk. He did it again when he was in Stockton, California with the mayor, Michael Tubbs. And I'm just curious, do you think that that apology is enough?
1: Well, you know, this campaign's, I suppose, going to try to figure that out. I think if you look at the totality of what Mike has done and what his record, um, I don't think there's anyone that can hold their record up to Mike who's running for president now in terms of what they've done to try to address issues of the African-American community in New York. Hey, listen, you, let's, let's take a big step back and then let's take a little step forward. You want a Pulitzer Prize covering issues in New York City. You understand as well as anyone I know uh, how fraught the issue of race was in New York City when when Mike took office. Certainly the issue of 9-11 had sort of encompassed it, but... But Rudy Giuliani was a disaster. Oh, yeah. We went to an event the other night, and some guy got up and introduced Mike, and he said, uh, you know, I love Mike Bloomberg because I'm a New Yorker, and, and he came in, and and he had to clean up the mess that was Rudy Giuliani. And I love him now because you know what he's going to do now? He's going to come in, and he's going to clean up the mess that is Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> and I thought, wow, how, how good is this guy? <laughs> Full circle. And can we take him on the road? But, you know, listen, Rudy had divided this city, and Mike knew that. And so Mike didn't have a – a huge swath of of the city that he had sort of pulled together. He ran a real outsider's campaign. But what's the first call that Mike did that night? And you know this, you know, the first call Mike made after he won was to call Al Sharpton up who had really been at the barricades and fighting all of the things that Rudy had done to tear at the social fabric and the racial fabric of New York. And he said, listen, you didn't support me. And and how uncommon is this? Like who, who in their first call doesn't call a supporter, but calls someone who really had, had actually endorsed his opponent. And says, hey, listen, I, I know you know you didn't support me. Uh, I know we no, don't know each other. Uh, but I also know we got to pull this city back together. And so I'd like to know where you're going to be tomorrow night. And uh, and Reverend Sharpton said I'm going to be at the uh, uh, the event for 100 black men that night. And Mike said, well, listen, I'm not going to try to bigfoot on the event. But if you would be outside that event, I'd like to come over and I'd like to shake your hand. And I'd like, I'd like the press to take a picture of it. Because I'd like them to know that we're going to try to heal the wounds here in this city. And it was a remarkable thing to do. I think now people think, well, you know, listen, lots of people are shaking Re- Reverend Al's hand. Boy, back then. Not then. Not not then. And so, you know, and when, listen, when Mike went forward, a lot of people in this country for decades, and I think even today, are more than willing to turn their back on gun violence. And I don't mean just the NRA. I don't just mean Republicans. I mean lots of people, right? I mean, you look at, you look at Baltimore today, and, and the entirety of Washington, D.C. turned their back on a city that's 45 minutes north that had a team that I rooted for when I grew up in Washington, and no one has really tried to address the issues of Baltimore. And some part of me thinks, when I read these stories about how much we invest overseas, I think, why haven't we put that into Baltimore? But so, listen, Mike wanted to address the issue of illegal guns, right, that was killing people in the city. And so getting, listen, guns off of people that were carrying them was a big issue. But it wasn't the only issue. And so stop and frisk rose, but let's, let's walk through that because I think it's important for people to know the facts. Uh, and it became a big part of how the police checked for whether people were carrying guns in the city. And it was overused, right? And people say you didn't apologize. Okay, but, but Mike reduced it from 2012 to 2013 and a half.
0: The number of the number number stops. Right? By
1: the way, left in 14. Reduced it in half, right? And then between 2013 and 2014, he reduced it by 90%. And so, th- this is not something anyone has to believe me. More than happy to look it up. These are NYPD
0: numbers that the De Blasio administration can release on their own. And and and, and, and those numbers are in the lawsuit that ruled that stop and frisk, while constitutionally, was permissible, but they were the not was- reduced because of the lawsuit. <clears throat> But the way the stops were implemented were not constitutional. But also in that lawsuit, the data shows that yeah, the stops the stops were reduced, but the number of guns and the number of contraband completely was not it was completely, completely negligible. I think what everyone <laughs>
1: agrees now, and Mike agrees, is that the practice was overused. And he apologized, and he said he made a mistake. Now we have a president who's not willing to ever make an apology mm-hmm. or, or or ever admit a fault. And by the way, I'm not quite sure how many other candidates on the trail are doing it now either. But let's let's go to the totality because I think it is important, right? Which is, you look at this issue. And so, w- what else did Mike do? So, incarceration over the period that Mike was in office rose by six percent, right? Incarceration in New York City declined by thirty six percent, because Mike focused on the totality of this. How do I get guns? out of the pockets of young men in New York City who are carrying them and may do something that, that ruins their life. And there was a practice that was overused and ultimately that Mike ended. But there was also a practice and Mike started said, hey, when we do catch people, we got to do everything we can not to send them to prison. Because when we send them to the prison, their problems get worse. And it's really, really hard to get out of that cycle. And what else did Mike do? Even before people were touched by the criminal justice system, he said, there are populations in our city that are at risk. We know that, right? People around the country are simply ignoring it. And so Mike said, what programs can we create so they don't touch the criminal justice system? And so he created the Young Men's Initiative. No one else in the country, literally no one else in the country. We are three percent of the national population in New York here in New York City, and no one in the ninety-seven percent of the rest of the country was focusing on the kinds of reforms to keep young men of color out of engaging with the criminal justice system in that way. And what did Barack Obama do? So Barack Obama adopted Mike Bloomberg's program. Why am I, and actually took it national at the end of Mike's term
0: in his own program to address the issue of of, of young men at risk. Right, and that, it was called My Brother's Keeper. Now that you mention it, I saw Mike in the East Room of the White House at the ceremony where President Obama signed the executive order. Thank you for for reminding me of that. There's something else that's interesting here in this discussion. Mayor Bloomberg has received the endorsement of Steve Benjamin, the mayor of Columbia, South Carolina, Michael Tubbs, the mayor of Stockton, California, we mentioned a moment ago, Hardy Davis, who's mayor of Augusta, Georgia, but also the president of the African-American Mayors Association, Why do you think these three individuals, and I'm I'm sure there are more, black mayors, given this whole, how incendiary Stop and Frisk is, are stepping out and supporting Mayor Mike? And I should just point out, I interviewed Mayor Benjamin for a column a few weeks ago and asked him about Stop and Frisk, and he was like, I will never defend Stop and Frisk, but... That's one discreet piece in a larger um, Well,
1: because it, it gets right back to what I was talking about, which is there's another uh, great African-American mayor down in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, Meg went down and saw him uh, last week. And Mike went down and saw him because he called up and he said, um, hey, listen, I'm seeing all this stuff about uh, stop and frisk and what Mike's done. And, and I appreciate that he is reflective on what went well and what obviously didn't go well. He said, but I don't understand why you guys aren't talking about the reforms that you did to keep young black men out of prison. He goes, "I'm following those reforms." He goes, "Down here in Jackson, Mississippi, I am implementing reforms that you taught me, that Mike put into place in New York City that were effective and that are really bearing fruit down here." And so our team said, "Well, that's amazing. Can we come down and talk to you?" And so Mike went down to see the mayor of Jackson because when, listen, here's the thing about being a mayor, you don't get to be a senator. You don't get just to give a speech. You don't get just to do anything. You know what happens? You make mistakes. Right? Really good mayors make mistakes all the time. And you know why? Because they do things. You know who doesn't make mistakes? People that don't do anything. There are plenty of mayors around the country that quite frankly don't do a whole lot. People in executive office that don't do a whole lot. Hey, listen, it's really nice to be in the Senate and go give a speech about what you would do if you were in power or, hey, I'm gonna vote for this or do that, but fundamentally you're not doing a whole lot of the passing money down to truly affect people's lives in my view. And so, listen, it's back to the issue of guns. Stop and frisk ultimately was an overused practice, uh, which was used in a disproportionate way, but it was designed to get guns off the street. Mike also took on the NRA at the exact same time in ways that no one would doubt. No one. No, we have a country over 350 million people. No one in this country has taken the NRA on over the last 10 years, 20 years, at the level that Mike Bloomberg has done. No one, and this gets back to the mayors, Instituted the kinds of reforms to address communities of color and both to try to keep people who had been, who would become involved in the justice, with justice problems out of prison. And no one worked harder, literally no one worked harder around the country to try to figure out how people wouldn't come in contact and could lead productive lives. And so when you're one of these mayors, whether you're Steve Benjamin, you know, whether you're the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, whether, you know, you're the mayor of Stockton, California, you get it. Like, this is a hard job. But the real differentiators, wh- which are these mayors and which are these colleagues of theirs are out there fighting to make a difference and which are choosing to sit on the sidelines? And listen, it sort of gets back to why Mike is in this race. Mike has never been a person to sit on the sidelines. I'm happy to say Mike didn't just, you know, run that first campaign. New York City is a, is a majority minority city. Sixty percent of, of New York City is not white. Right. You know, Mike won three elections in New York City. One, that he wasn't expected to win. A second that, you know, a year out because he had to raise taxes, close firehouses, you know, rebuild the city. He was down probably 14 points that everyone was going to run against before the second election, ultimately won on the land side. And the third the third term, uh, obviously, there was this little issue about changing term limits and uh-huh. ultimately running for a third term to bring uh-huh. it back. And Mike won that campaign again. Listen, I've, I've never started a campaign with Mike Bloomberg where he didn't start out with people saying, listen, I, he can't succeed. And I think, listen, kind of remarkably, I've, I've, I've never seen a term of Mike's in office or initiative that he's taken on out of office where people doubted that he could win. The biggest of all is really what's happening with the NRA now. And there were a lot of people who, who said to Mike, hey, listen, you can take on the fights that you want, but taking on the NRA is not a fight you're going to win. You're, you're, you're flushing your money down the toilet and you look at what's going on in this country right now in terms of winning elections around the country, most recently in Virginia with people who are willing to stand up to the NRA. That is their home. Their headquarters is based in Virginia, right. but willing to stand up with Mike's support and Mike's leadership and say, enough. And it's kind of remarkable.
0: You know, one thing you left out, he also uh, ended smoking in bars. Remember how unpopular that was yeah. then and how now everyone's saving money on dry cleaning? You know, I want to read this one. <laughs> this one quote to take it back to stop and frisk and then we'll move on to something else because I do think it, it was important what Mayor Tubbs of Stockton, California said. He said, you have folks that wrote the 94 crime bill, which recreated mass incarceration. You have folks that voted for the 94 crime bill. You have folks who supported Ronald Reagan. There's not a candidate in 2019 who has a criminal justice record that supports where we are today. But I think the sign of a good leader is one who apologizes and not just apologizes in, in a room where everyone agrees. And he's talking about how Mike went to CCC and to a congregation he knows well and congregation that knows him well to say, I'm sorry, and I apologize. What do you say to African Americans for whom, as Mayor Benjamin told me, stop and frisk is a threshold issue and that Mike is a non-starter for them? What do you say to them, or is there anything you could say to them to get them to reconsider?
1: You know... Listen, I think one of the difficulties in politics is to understand the totality of anyone's life. I worked for Pat Hunt for five years, and he had this remarkable record. And unfortunately, people sort of always try to focus on the last thing he did instead of really looking sort of who he was and what he had done over the course of one of the great political careers in American history. I think when you look at Mike, it's really important to understand who Mike was and why he was doing it. Mike made a, a stronger commitment to try to address the issue of illegal guns, whether they were on the streets, whether they were flowing from, uh, you know, illegally from states like Virginia because it lacks federal laws, or you know whether there were uh, initiatives that we needed to take to keep people out of prison, because ultimately, you know, in Mike's view, prison is likely to lead to recidivism and people being stuck in a system that they'll never get out. No one had took on the totality of those issues like Mike, but quite frankly, let's go back to sort of where we started with the Reverend Sharpton. I don't think people remember the importance of also how Mike handled things when they did go wrong. And I mean in big ways. Timothy Stansberry being shot on a roof in Brooklyn by a white cop. Or, um, you know, the things that go wrong, where, where police made mistakes. And we had gone decades, certainly in this city and quite frankly nationally, where you really did not have someone, even then, who was willing to say, hey, listen, something here went wrong. You had Rudy, who was always the first to rush to the defense of a cop even when it was seemingly indefensible. And so when Sean Bell got shot, one of the most horrific tragedies I've seen in New York City, young man uh, leaving his bachelor party unarmed and is shot in his car by police in a way that's indefensible. Mike Bloomberg knew what he had to do, knew what mayors for decades before him would never do, which is he had to walk into Sean Bell's house and apologize to his mother. He had to say that, hey, listen, this couldn't be tolerated. He had to say that we need to change the system so things like this never happened again. And he needed to keep a city from blowing up, right, in ways that it always had. And in some ways around the nation still does. But, you know, listen, when Mike was in office, and you've known Reverend Sharpton as long as I have, or, you know, the folks out at CCC or others, but I don't know a mayor over my adult lifetime who wasn't more decent or more effective or more compassionate when things went wrong in pulling a city back together right? And we see things going wrong all the time now. But when they went wrong in New York, Mike knew who to call. He knew what had to be said. You know, he knew that, hey, listen, for those funerals, the mayor needed to be up in the front row. And people need to know that the mayor knew that that family not only deserves an apology, but they deserve justice. And for decades, no one was willing to do that. You know, you look back now at those horrific incidences, and you think, How remarkable was it that you could heal that city when things like that happen? And I think that's a true measure of a man. And I think people need to remember that.
0: When, um, again, before we talked and you said rather emphatically that President Trump is already winning and Democrats don't know it. The one thing I noticed in that, the emphatic nature that you said that, there's a sense of urgency. What do you think happens to the American experiment if indeed Donald Trump wins a second term as president of the United States? Listen, it's a great
1: question. Uh, Mike was asked this in Madrid when he went to the climate accords uh, earlier this week, and I'll get to that in a minute. I think to the urgency. You know, a year ago, my view was Donald Trump had lost the last general election by three million votes to Hillary Clinton, ultimately, obviously won with the Electoral College vote. But my view, having looked at data and talked to folks that I thought were pretty smart, had run campaigns, is that isn't he was going to lose by five or nine million Votes in a popular election, and ultimately, very difficult to put the Electoral College vote together if that happens. I think, as we've seen this campaign play out, have we seen some of the structural deficiencies in how it's structured? And as we've seen the polls in the swing states, I'm incredibly nervous. You know, I am nervous that Donald Trump is poised to win again. And quite frankly, there's no question in my mind that Brad Pascal, who is Donald Trump's Campaign manager shows up for work in the morning and thinks he has a winning hand, and that he's playing a winning hand, and I think that's really, really tough to understand. Hey, it's 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 tough for me to understand. I I think the first few weeks I started saying it. I'm not sure I totally believed it because I didn't want to believe it, but I think it's true. And once you understand that, yeah, yeah, you get a lot of urgency because it gets to the second part of your question, which is. What does it mean to this country or to this planet that he gets me eight more years and it gets back to what Mike said? Mike was asked. Four more years. Four more years, sorry. Eight years in total. And Mike was asked. And Mike said, hey, listen, I, I think we can put this country back together after four years of Donald Trump uh, as president. I think we can put international agreements, most notably the, the Paris Climate Accords, back together after four years with Donald Trump as president. It'll be hard work and you'll really need someone who knows how to do that. But Mike's view is it can be done. But Mike said, to be honest with you, I really don't know if it's going to be possible to put it all back together in a way that we must if he's there for eight years. And so that gives you a real sense of urgency.
0: You know, when you said that Brad Pascual, the campaign manager for the Trump um, reelect, goes into work every day thinking he's playing a winning hand, how much does the overt racism and xenophobia play into that winning hand i think there
1: i think he's definitely holding the card and i think he's definitely playing it um there's no question about that uh you know listen you can go through a facebook transparency report and look at the sort of stuff they're pushing out there i mean it's it's bonkers uh, these guys will test anything i mean they believe in nothing and so there's no question that you know <laughs> it might be more than one of the cards they're holding and playing um but listen it's it's combined with the cards that you know, there are folks who sit in some of those swing states I mentioned who really are worried about jobs, who really are worried about, you know, losing their health care. It's like someone said to me recently who had been up in, in Harrisburg and was actually talking to a reporter and a reporter said to them, hey, when when you're uh, an out of work uh, union guy in western Pennsylvania, you know, the last thing you have is actually your health care. Right. You may be out of work, but you have a union provided policy and it's still funded. And so you still have your health care. And when, you know, you hear some of these candidates on the Democratic side talk about health care, what that guy hears is that someone's going to take their health care away and give them their parents, Uh, meaning Medicare. And that scares them um, or her. And uh, if we're going to take this country back, we're going to have to have a message and we're going to have to campaign. We're going to have to fight for the votes of a lot of those folks in western Pennsylvania and Michigan and Wisconsin, North Carolina, Florida and Arizona. Uh, who flipped last time?
0: But what does it say about America that a campaign of overt racism and xenophobia works? And I say that because in the twenty, I think that the twenty eighteen midterm elections was a dry run that President Trump ran for twenty twenty. In that. He gave up on the House races and focused solely on the Senate, where Democrats were uh, on their heels, running in states for reelection that Trump, that President Trump won. Not only so, the Democrats overwhelmingly win the majority in the House, but lose two seats in the Senate, increasing the Republican majority. And to my mind, the House is the popular vote, the Senate is the electoral college, and the president spent two weeks every day, sometimes twice in one day. Holding rallies, throwing out the rawest of red meat to his base, peddling in overt racism and homophobia, and it worked. What does it say about our country well, that that it, works and could work again?
1: It says two things. I suppose they're both a little depressing. I think in the macro, it says that we're not so different from the rest of the world, and populism works, um, and it's really frightening. I think we as Americans, and, and certainly, you know, I like to believe that we hold ourselves to a higher standard in this great, you know, melting pot. But populism works, um, and that you know if there's someone out there to appeals to the to the worst in people, it, it can have effect. Um, I think the other thing in the micro though is it's when you look at these things, uh, it is a bit of a leap to compare the success that we had, and and by we I mean Mike too, uh, who really you know I think led an important component of this taking back the house in those swing districts, and the mechanics of what a presidential election is like, and so the the closer synonym to what happened last cycle if you're to play it forward, is really to look at the Gillum race in Florida, mm-hmm. right? And so, yes, we were able to pick up a lot of, of House seats and, and ultimately put in a, a Democratic House majority. But it's also true that a Trump lookalike in the state of Florida ran for governor against an Obama lookalike. Uh, Andrew Gillum was an incredible candidate. Right. He was actually, a, I mean, we adored him because he was a terrific mayor.
0: Mayor uh, Tallahassee. Yeah, I mean,
1: it, and, and just a K-pop terrific guy. Mike went down to, to campaign for him at least once, I think twice. But he lost a close election in the state of Florida. And Florida is probably the most important state in the general election because it's one of six swing states and it has the greatest number of electoral college votes. Uh, but we lost that
0: race. L- last question for you. And, and that is, let's say Mike Bloomberg secures the delegates to become the Democratic nominee. What are, I'm not going to ask you who he would pick. But what are the qualities of the person he would pick
1: for vice president? For, yes, for vice president. Right, and can he pick a Washington Post journalist? Do you think that's out of the question? Oh, please, Cle- Kevin, come on. But
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, if, if asked, to be, I will serve. That's the right
1: answer. That's the right answer. Um, listen, I think it gets back to sort of what I said before, which is I think there's going to be a big job here to pull this country back together, and I think whatever, whether it's Mike Bloomberg whether it's someone else running for president, they're going to have to pick a candidate that sends a signal that we're pulling this country back together and that we're pulling people back together and that we're going to be campaigning, you know, across those states and pulling people back who who voted for Donald Trump and and, and need to switch their vote. I think it's obviously extraordinary to sort of speculate. You know, right now we're just speculating whether Mike can, can run a successful campaign. I do think... Uh, and so, listen, I think it's incumbent upon Mike and it's an incumbent upon whoever wins to ultimately find some real diversity on their ticket um, so they can help pull it together. I think, I'll, you know, if this is the last question, I'll sort of sum it up. I think, you know, listen, Mike Bloomberg is in this race to put a few nails in Donald Trump's coffin as president of the United States. And I think that there is no doubt in my mind that he will succeed in putting a few of those nails in there. We're doing two things. We're running to replace uh, the president. And we're wanting to uh, try to make Mike Bloomberg the nominee. My hope is certainly that those two things come together. But there is no doubt that Mike will have an outside effect in reducing Trump's chance of re-election. But I think there's a lot more work to do. And I think we're just getting started.
0: Kevin Sheeke, campaign manager for Bloomberg 2020. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, My first interview after we get the nomination is going to be with Jonathan Capehart. Well, what about Mike? Can I get Mike? Well, Mike will be well before that. Okay, I'm just, just checking, <laughs> getting you on the record with that. Kevin, thank you so much. Thanks for being Thanks for listening to Cape Up. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.